All right. Thank you, Mackin. Good morning, guys. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Brandon. I serve as one of the pastors here. So glad that you're here with us this morning to worship Jesus. Um, well, let's, uh, as we do, start our time of teaching with just a moment of silence. Um, as you can see in our text today, we're going to be talking about conflict and disagreement. And I know for many of us, uh, we could probably think of people, churches, communities, family members, uh, where we have unresolved disagreements, intense disagreements. And um, so I know this might trigger some anxiety, some anger, some sadness, loneliness. Um, so I just want to, let's just put our stuff down for just a moment. And uh, let's just be reminded that God is with us and he's for us. Take a deep breath in, breathe in God's grace and his mercy this morning. Let's take a deep breath out. Let's breathe out our cares, our concerns, our worries, and let's just bring our hearts before God and ask him to speak to us, and then I'll pray. God, our Father, we thank you that this morning you see us, that you know us, that you love us in Christ. Jesus prayed while on earth that his people might be one, that they might experience a deep unity in the midst of diversity and even sometimes disagreement. And yet, God, for some of us, we find ourselves with relationships, with memories that are not of happiness and oneness, but of division and resentment bitterness and pain and wounds and possibly even abuse. And so, God, we, we just want to lift our hearts to you in the midst of what feels impossible. We know that Jesus has said to his disciples that what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so we want to just open ourselves to your loving presence this morning. We pray that you would convict us, that you would comfort us through your word, by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Acts 15 might be, what we see here in Acts 15 might be the greatest miracle in the book of Acts. And by that, I mean, it's not called a miracle, but Christians disagreeing and finding unity. That might be the greatest miracle to happen in the entire book. I, when I think about uh, the, the potential for how this could have gone, and I think about how easy it is for us, because we live in a moment characterized by beef, right? Like just beef and conflict and disagreement. Um, I'm reminded of, uh, I, I grew up loving sports, played uh, basketball growing up a little bit. It was mediocre at best, but uh, I remember some of my heroes uh, like having beef with each other. Uh, one of the more famous ones, for those of you who were uh, babies when this happened, which is a lot of you in here, uh, Kobe and Shaq, right? Like had this massive falling out. I, I loved watching both of these guys play 
Uh, and, and they, and, you know, the, the story's complicated, as all the narratives are. And I, nobody really knows where it started. Some people say Shaq made fun of Kobe's crossover at an all-star game in the 90s. Some people say it was Kobe making fun of Shaq's weight and kind of mocking him when he would come back overweight to training camp. But it, but it turned into this big thing, this big public thing, and they were always kind of at each other. And even though they won championships, there was just this underlying note of tension between these two men. And Supposedly, they reconciled, um, actually, before Kobe's death, but you could always sense, like, there was an interview that Kobe gave, I think it was like 2019, where he said something to the effect of, uh, if Shaquille O'Neal wasn't so lazy, he could have won 12 championships, right? So you can kind of see, like, it wasn't okay. Um, but I remember when, uh, the day that the helicopter crashed and Kobe died, I remember watching NBA on TNT that night, and it was, you know, Chuck and Kenny and Ernie and, and Shaq. And this image is something that I'll, I'll never forget, um, Isaiah, if you could show, show that slide, of just Shaq, like, literally, like, coming undone as he's trying to talk about this complicated relationship that he has with Kobe. And you could sense in this moment just all of the hopes and dreams shattered. And, and you could sense the, some of the regret and the, just the sense that this relationship was not ever what Shaq hoped it could be. Even though the day before he died, Kobe texted Shaq's son and was just like checking. Like, so there's deep relationship, but also deep pain, um, which is what makes um, like this next slide, uh, throw the next slide up there, which, ma- which makes this pretty amazing. I don't know if you guys saw this, another uh, big beef that was going on when I was a kid uh, between Magic Johnson and Isaiah Thomas. I mean, these men were like sworn enemies. And then just a few years ago, there was a power, if you've not seen this YouTube video of this event, of them coming together and literally reconciling after decades of hostility, I mean, it will make you weep. It's really, really powerful, especially with men. You don't see men come together like this in public and just, just weep and, and reconcile. And I think these, these are like low stakes examples, right? Like we can laugh about athletes and it's like, okay, well, they're, you know, they're millionaires, they'll be okay. They're big babies, you know, and they make billions of dollars or whatever. So, but, but I think it's, it's, it's a good way for us to get into this conversation because it just shows you how hard it is to deal with disagreement, to deal with conflict, to work through it. It's so hard, right? I mean, there's so many reasons why it's so hard. Like, we just live in a really anxious time, and there's so much impatience. When we get into beef with people, we have disagreements with people, particularly in social media, in a time of social media, where it's like, if you don't solve it in five minutes, you got, I mean, the the masses are just descending on you, and they're saying all kinds of things about you, maybe even boycotting you or or labeling you, uh, you know, labeling your speech hate speech or whatever. There's just a lot of anxiety and impatience, and it's hard to just, I mean, this took decades, right? Um, I think mostly, though, there's just a lot of fear, right? We're afraid when we come into a disagreement. We're afraid that we might be wrong. We're afraid that if we concede anything in the other party being right, then that somehow implies that we're wrong, and of course we can't handle being wrong about something. We're afraid of, well, what might happen if we actually came back together because we've been playing this role, and maybe I'm in the victim role and they're in the persecutor role, and what happens if that gets upended and all of a sudden we have to be equals, right? There's all of these fears, or we're afraid of being hurt, right? We've been hurt time and time again, and to enter in with vulnerability is is just to have this basic human primal fear of being hurt again, to to fall into cynicism and despair. Some of us, we just have never been trained. We've never been taught what it looks like. We grew up in families where we either avoided conflict, we avoided disagreement, or, and so we kind of faked peace in our families, or our families were just always fighting, and some of us, like, 
conflict is intimacy, right? Like we're not actually close unless somebody's yelling, right? Like that's just kind of the family we grew up in. And so we're all over the map. But my point is, it's really hard right now, especially right now, to find unity in the midst of disagreement. Um, commentator Alan Jacobs, he's a professor of literature at Baylor University. He writes a lot on how we as a kind of pluralistic society, he's a believer, but he writes a lot. He wrote a great book called How to Think, and he's trying to help people wrestle with how do we, how do we cross these differences and love each other across these differences. He, he says we have this basically what he calls a, a trade-in society, and he said this is the easiest way for us to deal with disagreement, and here's what he says. It seems that we are becoming habituated to making what he calls the nuclear option, the first option, or very close to the first option when we can. Trying to come to terms with a difficult person or a difficult situation is an endeavor fraught with uncertainty. It might work, it might not, and even if it does work, I could end up paying a big emotional price. Why not just bail out and start over? If you haven't asked that question in the last couple of years, I don't know that you've been alive. Why not just bail out and start over? It seems to me that if there's one thing that our current version of advertising-based capitalism teaches us all is that everything is replaceable. Everything can be reproduced or traded in for a new and improved model. That applies to coaches. He's talking specifically here about sports, actually, in this article. That applies to coaches. That applies to churches, to spouses. We live in a trade-in society. It's so true. Right? Many of us have done that. We've traded in relationships. We've traded in churches. We've traded in marriages. We've traded in uh, you know, lifelong friendships. And that's what makes this text just so beautiful and yet so tragic. Right? Like It's our deepest longing to experience something like this in Acts 15, and yet it is our greatest fear, and it almost seems Pollyannish to presume. When you really think about like a deep, profound disagreement that you have with somebody, like, it, it almost seems impossible to think that we could find something like what they found here in Acts 15. And we're not even talking about society. We're talking about just the church. We're just talking about Christian families. We're just talking about Christian relationships just in here, nevertheless, out in the world. But how do we expect things to change out there if we don't experience that kind of radical work in here? And so this is an invitation here to see something that I think should provide some hope for us. Um, so biblical scholars look at Acts 15, and, and they see in here really the turning point. I'll give you some of the language of uh, commentators. They call this passage a turning point, the centerpiece of Acts, a watershed, the most crucial chapter in the book of Acts. Structurally, it's right at the center of the narrative of Acts, but also theologically, it's right at the center, and everything begins to shift and pivot around Acts chapter 15. Now, if you remember the context, the narrative here, um, Jesus said in Acts chapter one, you're gonna be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so the movement of Christianity spreads, as Jesus said it would, from Jerusalem, which is primarily the center of Judaism, out into the Roman Empire, and increasingly a large number, not a small number, a torrent of Gentiles, non-Jewish Christians are being converted and here's the problem, right? It's one thing for them to say yes to Jesus, which we saw in the story of Cornelius back in chapters 10 and 11. It's another thing to begin to imagine how do these very different cultural groups come together and actually find unity across their differences and actually begin to live together socially and culturally 
and love each other across their differences. So chapter 15, verse 1 starts, some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers. This is, they're coming to Antioch, where Paul has planted this church, mostly Gentiles. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. That's the issue that they're facing here in Acts 15. Some disciples had come from Jerusalem, from the Jerusalem church, claiming to have the authorization, the authority of James, which actually James goes on to say later in verse 24, I didn't give them permission, right? But they, they did it anyways. And they're teaching that you have to be circumcised according to the law of Moses, which you can imagine men in Antioch probably not super excited about that, right? Um, probably not excited about going to church. Um, so they're saying you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And it's so persuasive, this teaching, that Paul says in Galatians chapter two, that even Peter and Barnabas, like champions for the Gentiles, are led astray into this hypocrisy. And, and, and again, here's the central question they're facing. Do Gentiles have to become culturally Jewish in order to become Christians? That's the issue at play. So there's a theological question here that they're wrestling with, right, about the nature of the gospel. Do you have to be Jewish to be saved? But there's also a social question about cultural identity, about cultural practices, about the kind of food and, and, and what the implications are for our bodies, very sensitive parts of our bodies, right? Like, it, like this is what's at stake when we start talking about culture. And the question that's essentially before this church is will they choose segregation, right? Some sort of ancient separate but equal way to imagine their lives together or will they choose integration and a deeper communion with God and with each other? That's what's at stake here. Willie Jennings, uh, the African-American uh, scholar, uh, commenting on this passage, kind of summarized this in a really good way. He says, the single greatest challenge for disciples of Jesus is to imagine and enact a together life that flows inside the subtleties and intricacies of people's differences, of such things as language, story, land, and animals. It has been easier to imagine either loss or resistance, loss of difference through assimilation or its control through conquest or resistance to its loss through active segregation. How can people, and this is the key question, how can peoples be joined together, truly joined together without loss, without death of one people's ways for the sake of the other? This question strength lay in our century-long, centuries-long inability to answer it. And he goes on to say, in the modern West, we've chosen mostly segregation when it comes to how the church has answered these kinds of questions. So what we have here is an attempt to answer that question through the first church council. And really this council, I mean, Luke spends an entire chapter, he doesn't just say, they had some conversations, yada, yada, and they went on. He actually pauses, think about how much real estate this passage gives us to tell us not just the outcome, which is great, but the actual process that they went through to get to that outcome. And so what I want to do is I want to just probe this text. We talked about reconciliation and cultural identity a few weeks ago, so I don't wanna get into the specifics of that. I wanna back up and just zoom out and look at the larger context and what this shows us about how to disagree in general, how to disagree without division, how to disagree without disunity, and, and really how to disagree even in realistic ways that sometimes lead us to outcomes that we don't want. 
Sometimes we see at the end of this passage, it doesn't always end in unity. But I want us to see this, and I want us to just consider the gift that this kind of approach to our life together could be, not just for us, but for our city. I mean, you think about all the diversity. You think about all of the challenges of trying to be a pluralistic, multicultural society, a place like Indianapolis, right, which has a long history of segregation, right? People just saying it's not worth trying to come together. And we have all these differences. I'm not just talking about race and ethnicity. Think about class and economics. Think about gender. Think about generational diversity, right? Young people moving into our community, older people who've been here for a long time. I mean, there's all kinds of examples of this. But just think about the gift that it could be if we could learn how to disagree, how to love each other and come together across our differences and negotiate a, a shared reality with each other. What a gift that could be for Indianapolis. What a gift that could be for families that right now are experiencing fracturing in our community. So let's talk about how to disagree. What do we see here in the passage? Just a couple of things that I want to point out. Uh, We see this community pressing in to disagreement, right? Not running away, pressing in. We see a receptivity here uh, rather than hostility. We see confrontation rather than the the avoidance of, of confrontation. We see a learning conversation happen, and we see arbitration, and then we see a, an invitation to clear commitments and accountability. Those are the big ideas that I want us to look through here together as we look at this text. So let's start first. We see uh, this community press in to disagreement. Notice again in verse two, as, as they're having this, uh, these teachers, these false teachers are coming into the community. It says at verse two, after Paul and Bartimus had engaged them in serious debate and disagreement. So the first thing we see is Paul, Paul's response to this false teaching about the gospel and about cultural identity is no, right? Like if you read Galatians 2, Paul's like, this is not only wrong, he said this is a false gospel. Like what's happening here is a false gospel. And so they're debating and it sparks, this language here is really strong, these two Greek words for um, serious argument and debate, this is not just like people having a little chit-chat over coffee, right? Like, this is serious controversy. The word means fierce conflict or disorder or disagreement or a, a breach, a controversy. And, and again, just notice the response. It's not complicated, but it's so hard, right? Notice the response. After they'd engaged them in argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed from Antioch to go up to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem about this issue. So I want you to notice a couple of things. The the big thing I want you to see here is they pressed in. They didn't run away. They didn't try to ignore it, right? Like there's a lot of things they could have done. This is a serious thing, right? So like this is not like the color of the carpet or whatever, like the things we fight about in church, right? I don't know if you guys grew up in church, the dumb things that people fight about. Those things can be overlooked. We're talking about major offense and major error here, right? And not only that, like basically these Jews are saying to the Gentiles, you are second class, You are a second class. You are JV Christian. So I just want you to get in your mind somebody that you have like a serious disagreement with that like thinks they have the moral high ground in in their, like they think they're right. They think you're basically dumb, right? Like I want you to kind of think of that in your mind. And notice what they do. It's the opposite of what I would want to do. They, They don't avoid. They don't ghost. They don't stop returning texts and calls, and the next thing you know, they show up in another city, right? Like, they don't minimize, they don't suppress, because maybe they're afraid, well, if we press into this, then we're gonna be accused of stirring up racial animosity and division. They don't do that. 
They don't gossip about it with their friends on social media. Uh, they didn't have our social media, but they had media. They could have written letters. They, they didn't react with animosity or, and, and boycott and start stereotyping people, calling them bigots and assuming things about them. They didn't hive off to form their own church or an alternative community. That's the first thing. They, they just they press in. They engage. But notice also, um, they didn't assume the worst about the Jesus movement because of what was said. I mean, this is so crazy how we do this, but notice they don't assume that what these people said about the gospel is actually what Jesus said. They don't make assumptions that these teachings or truths or ideological statements, who by the way were spouted by people in the name of Jesus claiming to represent James, they don't confuse that with gospel truth. They don't take bad teaching and then confuse it with the truth of Jesus and then use it as a pretense, weaponizing it against the church or walking away from the faith. I mean, how easy is it to hear somebody say something crazy on social media, say something crazy on TV, and we just assume, well, that's what Jesus said, and we, we deconstruct our faith. We start deconverting, walking away, when it's not even what Jesus said. So they don't assume that. They engage. They press in. They seek clarity, which is the whole point of disagreement. Hey, we heard this was said, is this really true? They seek truth, they seek understanding, they seek resolution for the sake of unity and for the sake of the mission of God. Last thing I'll mention here about how they pressed in. Notice that they pull in, the Antiochian church pulls in Paul and Barnabas, right? Why do they do that? Why do they take Paul and Barnabas and some representatives from the church and engage that way? They, they, they do this because Paul and Barnabas are recognized church leaders with authority and with power. And they, they engage, notice, in a structured process, right? And, and I think they do this for two reasons. One, they're acknowledging there's power dynamics, right? You have a majority culture, a dominant culture with the Jews. The, the majority of the church is Jewish at this point, And you have a minority culture with these Gentiles, right? And I think they're aware of the potential for that minority community's voice to be marginalized in the face of a dominant majority culture. So they say, hey, let's take Paul and Barnabas as allies and advocates to go with you to Jerusalem. So that's I think, one thing that they're doing. The second thing that they do is they understand that, hey, man, we're young. We're a young church. We're not very good at doing this. We've been formed in the way of Rome, which is a way of violence, a way of coercion, a way of dominating other people, right? Not, not listening and not disagreeing without bloodshed. And so they recognize that they need wisdom, that they need to learn skills as a new community formed in the way of Jesus. And that's just as true for us today, especially looking around this room, seeing how young we are and how tricky and dicey it is to engage in multicultural work. Conflict requires wise allies, particularly for the young, for the less experienced, for the culturally vulnerable. And so I just wonder, like, how this would change, how we show up in conflict and handle disagreements. Because I know it's just easy for us. Like, how easy is it for us, especially in a time like this? Let's just be honest. We're all tired. It's been a lot the last couple of years. We're tired. We're tired in our jobs. Some of us are in professions where we are out, expending ourselves out in the community all the time, right, for the sake of the community. We're just, we're tired. We're traumatized. We're anxious, and it'd just be easier to either put somebody on blast when we have a disagreement and walk away, not caring about the consequences, or just avoiding it altogether and slowly evaporating, like that Homer Simpson meme that like backs up into the bushes, you know? Like just evaporating slowly 
because we don't want to deal with things. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to press in. The second thing you see is, again, how they press in. Notice verse 4. It's pretty amazing. When they arrived at Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles, the elders, and the Pharisees. They're welcomed. The second thing we see is that there's receptivity or hospitality. They are hospitably, warmly, relationally received. They're, they're not treated and demonized as enemies. They're not treated as subhuman. They're received as image bearers, fellow humans created in the image of God who have dignity and are worthy of respect. They're treated as fellow disciples redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And they're received, get this, without pretense and without preconditions. They welcome them in over a meal, I would imagine, and they start to share stories. They start to worship together. They start to talk about their life with God. And get this, knowing they still had differences to talk about after dinner. They welcome them in, knowing they have differences. This is the heart of hospitality. This is the heart of true receptivity rather than reactivity and hostility. It is an openness that is so hard to, I'm not gonna pretend this is easy, but an openness. It is a confidence, not in them, but in God, right? It is a confidence in God. It is a humility that sees and understands the complexity of our own hearts, first and foremost, right? Because we know we want somebody to receive us that way when we're wrong. There's a humility about the complexity of them and what they're going through. And there's just a generosity of spirit that's able to disagree with someone's position. This is so hard. It's hard for us to imagine what it's like to disagree with someone without completely disowning them and, and just completely trying to destroy them. We don't have a category for that in our binary world and the way we interact with each other, right? So we have to learn to be able to disagree without dismissing someone, condemning someone, right? That's the heart of what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, judge not yet lest you be judged. People always misunderstand that. Jesus is not saying you never judge someone's position. He's saying you don't judge the person and condemn and dismiss them. You, of course, have to judge and discriminate. And if you're parents, right, like you're every day making discriminations with your kids. If you're a teacher, if you're in, I mean, you're always having to make judgments. But there's a difference between I'm judging your position and I'm judging you. And that's what they had this ability to do. And again, just can we imagine this? It's hard to imagine extending that kind of hospitality to a person with whom you share deep theological or political or cultural disagreement with. Like, it's just so easy to go, they're the bad guy, they're evil, they're the enemy. To demonize them, to reduce them to a label, right? Because if I can reduce them to a label, then I can dismiss them. I don't have to personally engage with them. I don't have to sit knee to knee, eye to eye, nose to nose with them. I can just dismiss them as the other, as that kind of person. And I can distance myself from, them, myself from them without any sort of feeling of guilt or remorse. But hospitality, man, it humanizes. That's the invitation here. It treats people with respect and dignity. It sees them through the lens of relationship, through the lens of reconciliation, and most importantly, through the lens of God's redemptive purposes in their lives. God is doing something here through this disagreement that is going to mature the church and so I need to be able to see them through that lens instead of sorting them, pre-sorting them into some ideological category. It assumes, hey, we're on the same team. 
Let's find agreement first. We're not rivals who are staking out positions and then just lobbing grenades into each other's foxholes. Third thing we see uh, quickly here is confrontation. Some of the believers from the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. This is important. Receptivity and hospitality does not mean ambiguity or passivity or compromise. That's what some of us are afraid of. If I open space for them, then I'm agreeing with them or you know, I'm assenting to them being right. No, we, like hospitality means we have boundaries. If we're gonna be people of integrity, we have to have boundaries. We have to be clear about what we are about. The Pharisees had a conviction here and they were willing to stand up and say, hey, we think this is the way that it should be. Now they were wrong, but they, they were clear about their conviction. If we practice hospitality without confrontation, without boundaries, it leads to anxiety. It leads to confusion. It can even lead to dangerous situations. Think about your own house, right? Like you wanna be open, but you have boundaries in, in how you do hospitality. So clarity offers people a chance to orient themselves. Like this is where I stand. Now you gotta orient yourself to that reality and I wanna listen to you, you clarify yourself and now we get to orient so that we can have real learning, real growth, real negotiation. And again, don't miss like, Luke points our attention here to something really significant in verse five. He says, the, some of, he says but some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees said this. Luke is pointing our attention to who these people are and where they come from. They're the Pharisees. And this is where you cue the music if you grew up in church, dun, dun, dun. You know, like these are the bad guys. But maybe they're not. Is it possible to be a believer and a Pharisee? Most of us grew up believing no, but the answer here is yes. God is saving Pharisees in the book of Acts. So now we have this tension. And again, we tend to think of them as the bad guys. But remember, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were the renewal movement. They were the holiness movement. They were trying to resist the propaganda of Rome and Greece. And there's a long history going back hundreds of years of the Pharisees trying to protect and preserve the holiness of God's people. Now, they took it too far. They made it about externals instead of internals. But the point is, this zeal doesn't come from nowhere. There's a story and a history behind it. And I wonder, like, how much, again, it would change the way that we think about disagreement if when we find ourselves in a disagreement with other believers, rather than making assumptions about them, which, by the way, there's one of the Ten Commandments says don't bear false witness about each other. Don't tell lies. That's the easy thing to do. But what if we stopped and got curious and just said, man, hold on a second, time out, time out. There's some weird energy coming here on this subject. I don't understand why you're, why are you so worked up about this? Why, why is there so much conviction here? Even if they're wrong, do we have the ability to just say, can you explain to me where this is coming from? What's your story, right? Like what I found in disagreement and conflict is that when people are so passionate, they're so angry about something, our deepest anger often comes from a place of our deepest wounds and longings because we've been hurt. And when we step back to hear somebody's story, we recognize that those values, those convictions are often driven by wounds and losses and longings. We then have this ability to say, hey, tell me more. Like, you need to memorize that statement. Like, just lock that into your brain. Tell me more. I'm curious. Help me understand where this is coming from. We know that every, uh, every, everything comes from somewhere. There's a story behind it. The fourth thing we see 
is that then they engage in a learning conversation. We've talked about this a lot. Right? We did a bunch of sermons on this last year, so I don't want to go back into detail here just for the sake of time. But a learning conversation, the elders, the apostles and the elders gathered together to consider the matter. They sat down. They created a structure, right, which gives safety. It provides an opportunity for everybody's voice to be heard. And this word here, consideration, is like they're being thoughtful about it, right? They're moving away from that like primitive, lower brain, like reactive, emotional, anxious space. And they're moving over here to a place of integration, to a place of, of healing and wholeness where we can slow down and we can have a learning conversation, right? Where it's not like there's a huge difference between what we might call a learning conversation and what often gets practiced is a message delivery conversation. You know what I'm talking about? If, you've been in, if you're married or you have roommates or something, you're a human a message delivery is like, sit down, I'm about to tell you why you're wrong. And, and right, that's about ego, that's about being right, that's about me delivering. I've got like a truck full, like a semi full of stuff, and I'm just going to run you down with that. And the goal is like vindication or it's winning, right? Like some of us have been taught that the goal of a conversation is to win. That's the moment we live in, right? It's, it's winning, beating the other side. But a learning conversation is different. A learning conversation, the name, it's about learning, right? It's a structured environment where we discern. It's a place of connection, right? Where the goal is not to humiliate you or destroy you, but to connect with you relationally. It's a place of empowerment, right? Because it opens up space for all voices to be heard, all options to be considered, for a wise decision to be rendered that is not coming from a place of anxiety or fear or outrage, and again, just to give you some of the contours of this, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, this is so incredible. I really encourage you, slow down and read this for yourself this week. It is incredible the way that they, they do this. How they consider this is not in here for no reason. He goes into detail because he wants us to learn. So let me just point out some things that we see. They slow down. There's a slowing here, right? Like slowing down disarms fear and anxiety, it allows us to be wholehearted. It allows us to show up whole-brained. Or like there's like all kinds of research, like slowing ourselves down, taking a deep breath, coming together to consider and listen. Right? Like this is, this is why we need structured environments. We do all kinds of conflict mediation here at the church. And one of the things we found to be most important is when the t you know, tension rises, we, we just want to pull people in together and create a structured environment for those conversations to take place. I'll show you the tool that we use. We teach our leaders. We train on this. Being a young church, there's lots of opportunity to exercise and practice this. But this is a template that we use that was given to me by a friend of mine who does a lot of Christian uh, mediation. And we literally have both parties come to the table, whether it's an individual or a group, and fill this thing out left to right, both parties. And we sit down, we pray together, we talk through things, we listen to their story, and it's amazing when you actually slow down the kind of clarity that comes when you're able to say, hey, tell me what you perceive to be the facts, right? Tell me what your perception, how this is impacting you emotionally, not just with facts, but like emotionally. I wanna hear your sadness. I wanna hear how this is, this is hitting you. Intention, what do you think the other person intended? Do you really think they're the devil? Or like, could there be some things that maybe we're not seeing? And then what are the alternatives? What do you want to be different as a result of this conversation? We find people don't even know what they want. They just want something to stop, but they don't often know what they want to start. And so we walk through this process. And I encourage you, if, you've not, if you don't have a structure for this, you need one, right? And we're happy to help you with that. But that slowing process gives us space to just calm down, to see each other face to face, and have a better conversation. And that's what we see here. You see then speaking, right? 
Again, everyone's voice is heard. Everyone's experiences are shared. And then just a profound, like, I think the, the best verse in this whole passage, like the most amazing one to me, I, I didn't grow up in church, but I, I, when I came to faith in Christ, we came to, uh, to faith in a, in a church that did business meetings. If you don't know what those are, praise God. I'm so happy for you. But they did business meetings. This, verse 12 has never happened in any business meeting I've ever been to. Notice this. Paul, like everybody's getting up and speaking, taking turns. And then verse 12, the whole assembly became silent. When, like when do Christians ever be quiet and just be silent? And, and, and they listen to Barnabas and Paul. That's crazy. That's what happens when the Spirit's at work, though. The Spirit's talking, and we have the space to be quiet and listen. We're not good at listening. I'm not good at listening. Right? If you think that we are good at listening, I, I don't know how else we explain, like, the millions of dollars that are spent on counseling every year. I was talking to a clinically trained psychologist one time, a counselor, and they were like, I get paid to basically listen to people because nobody else will listen to them. Just really sophisticated listening techniques. And we think we listen well, but we often don't. I dare you this week to ask the people around you, a spouse, a roommate, somebody that you trust, how, how am I doing listening? What's my ratio of talking to listening? I bet you'll be surprised. Fifth thing, uh, quickly, arbitration. We don't have time to get into this, but we see after there's listening, after there's speaking, after everything's been heard, James an authorized leader in the church in Jerusalem. He acts as an arbitrator, a third party. He's empowered to make this decision. He, he weaves all these threads together. I love, uh, Willie Jennings calls it like theological and relational quilting. He's quilting here, pulling these different threads. Notice just the wisdom and the maturity of James. He's Jesus' brother, which again, like, if it, like, it's amazing to me. Like, the way that I know Jesus really rose from the dead is that his brother believed that he rose from the dead. Like, if you have a sibling, you're just not gonna believe that, right? But this is Jesus' brother, and he's got all this wisdom, and he, and he brings this decision with such deep sensitivity to an alignment with, like, Scripture. So he goes back to Scripture, and he says, hey, you guys missed some things here, right? Like, this is what God has been doing from the beginning. This is nothing new, right? And so again, this is a quote from Amos. This should cue us into the fact that because we have cultural blind spots, we often hijack scripture and use it for our own purposes or we miss things. So we need to be careful. We need to pay attention. God has always been doing this and saying this, and they needed this fresh experience with God's grace among a people that they were kind of conditioned to see as the other to bring new wine into old wineskins. So he has this deep sensitivity and ability to interpret scripture in fresh ways, uh, to take these experiences of what God's doing. And then there's just this real reliance in James and in the church, on God's power and his purposes, right? There's no ego here. Like, just how many times in this passage do you see the Holy Spirit mentioned? Like, this was the Holy Spirit's decision, not, and ours, but the Holy Spirit. God did this, right? It's the Holy Spirit that reminded us that the Gentiles are saved the same way that we are, by grace, through faith, in Jesus, you see that over and over and over again, right? There's this reliance on the Spirit. These people here, hear this. They are not smarter than you and I. They are not more emotionally stable than you or I. Their cultural moment was not any easier or less fragmented or divisive. Matter of fact, it was more so probably than ours. And yet, because of the Spirit's presence among them and their reliance on the grace of the Holy Spirit, they were able to find unity in the midst of disagreement. And, 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 you know, God's purposes were the th- really the controlling narrative, right? Like, they had this instinct. They were just governed by this reality 
that the good news of Jesus' kingdom being spread throughout the Roman Empire and then becoming this new multi-ethnic family is the narrative that made sense of everything. That's the filter over which they laid this conflict. And that was the thing that, that kept them moving forward. And so the decision is rendered from James, and it's consistent with God's purposes. Basically, he says, Gentiles, you don't have to become Jewish and assimilate your cultural identity to become part of the family of God. You don't do it. Don't do it. You're a Christian who happens to be raised Roman or Greek or Persian or Egyptian. And here's the reality. Those differences were ordained by God to become part of the beautiful tapestry of God's diverse creation. That's something that we need to celebrate, something we need to protect, something we should honor. We should never make somebody subvert their cultural identity in order to come into the family of God, whether we're doing that overtly or whether we're doing that unintentionally and subconsciously, right? Like that is not the way it's supposed to go. And yet, so he has this truth, and yet he says, hold this truth with love, right? You're gonna go out into the world he, all the stuff about the strangulation and the blood and all that, it's basically saying stay out of pagan temples. Don't, don't engage in pagan worship because you're gonna make your not yet Christian Jewish brothers and sisters stumble. And so this is amazing ability to say as you move out, don't lose the truth of who you are and your cultural identity. Like you can bring that in to integrate that with Christ without having to release that, but some of these practices are gonna have to be released. We, need, we see this beautiful truth and love held together for the larger purposes of unity. And then there's a, there's a commitment and then there's accountability. The apostles and the elders with the whole church decide to select men among them. They send them to Antioch, right? So the end result is there's a document, right? It clearly states, here's what the decision is. It's sent out with a group, right? Because again, you're sending this from a dominant cultural context into a minority context. I wanna say, here's the letter. And this letter gets referenced over and over and over again and becomes the standard of accountability. It's essentially a promissory note to the Antiochian Gentile church, there's going to be change in how people are relating to you, and there's going to be accountability in how you're going to be included in the church going forward. And the result is unity and encouragement and peace, and the mission of God goes forward. And just don't miss, as we close here, don't miss the end of this passage. There's a realism here. Not every disagreement ends in unity. After this happens, Paul says, hey, we should go back, Barnabas, to all these churches, and we should strengthen them. Let's go back to the, to the churches that we planted, and let's encourage them. And, Paul, and Barnabas is like, great idea. Can we take John Mark? And Paul's like, absolutely not, right? If you remember back to chapters 13 and 14, John Mark bailed when they were getting stoned. When the missiles were flying, John Mark's like, peace, I'm, back, I'm going back home. So Paul's is like, hey, my life's on the line. Like, if you work in, a, in, in any kind of occupation where your life's on the line regularly, you know the people around you have to be people you can trust. And so, of course, Paul's going, I don't, I don't trust John Mark. So no, I don't want to take him. And Barnabas is like, but hey, we should, we're Christians. Let's reconcile. You know, like Barnabas is always the one pushing to be the bridge builder to take risk relationally. And Barnabas is probably right because Paul and John Mark end up getting reconciled later. But for now, notice what happens. Massive disagreement. It says they had a sharp disagreement, which is an understatement. The word there in the Greek is paroxysm. It's a medical term that means a seizure. They literally had this epileptic fit of rage, and they break up. And I have to imagine this is something that haunts Paul for the rest of his ministry. Barnabas disappears here, and we never hear from him again in this narrative. And here's the hard thing. Both of them were right. And that's usually the case with conflict, right? Both of them are at least partially right. 
and they couldn't reconcile. And it meant like God was sovereign. God took, you know, Tim, uh, Paul and Silas, and they go, and then Barnabas takes John Mark, and they go, and the mission is still multiplied. Like, God's purposes are not thwarted by our inability to come together, but it's still tragic, and it's still sad, and I just love the realism that it's placed here for us to see, like, it doesn't always work out, and we don't have to over-spiritualize that. Like, what we want to do here is go, well, you know, we say things like, God's calling me to another place. We want to use like churchy language, right? God's calling me. I just feel this sense of being released. No, we just don't want to deal with it. Let's just be honest. I don't like this. It's hard. And Humpty Dumpty doesn't always get put back together. But I love that it's here, and I'm thankful, and I don't know what to do with it other than just to say, hey, if you're in a season where things aren't working out, you've experienced cut off, and you're not reconciled, like you're right in the middle of God's story. And God doesn't give up on us. So, we're going to go to communion. We want to celebrate communion together. And as we go there, I just want to invite us into a space of reflection. I want to invite us into a space of response. And just two things that I want us to reflect on as we uh, prepare ourselves for communion. One, I think there's an opportunity here to, to just see, like, conflict is normal. Conflict in the Bible and disagreement is, is normal and it's necessary. It's actually how we grow uh, in our relationship with God. It's part of what Paul talked about, we talked about a few weeks ago, through many hardships, you're gonna enter the kingdom of God. Disagreement is often one of those hardships, one of those crucibles. And so we need to be reflecting prayerfully on how we show up for those disagreements. So I just wanna invite you into a space to think now about maybe some conflict that you have in your life, some disagreement that you're having right now. And to see that as an invitation from God to meet you in the crucible there to transform you. Right, this is, like, God knows God sees, God loves you, and God wants to lead you into a place of healing and wholeness. And so I just threw these questions up here. Just, you can take a picture of these or you could jot these down, but just some questions to reflect on as you think about how you engage in disagreement because there's a whole story and a whole history of how you've done this. And, and some of the reason why we're not effective is because we've not taken the time to reflect on how we show up, right? And we have not taken the time to think about how we've been formed, what our patterns are, the scripts that we carry as we enter into those spaces. We would not be able to listen and speak as they listened and spoke to one another because we are incapable, because we've trained ourselves or we've been trained and we're, and we're sinful. So we need to do some work of prayerful reflection. And then I want us just to think about the gift that this could be for a divided world. Right, because everything that God's doing in us as a community is not for us. We've said that before. Everything God wants to do here, this is the training ground for what God wants to see happen in the world. But if Christians can't learn to do this here, if we can't learn to at least hope for these kind of redemptive possibilities that we could become a community that's unified, not uniformity, right, but unity in diversity, God wants to do something in us and through us that will be a gift to the world. So let's just take a moment. Let's come to prayer. Let's come to a time of confession. Let's be reminded that the gospel frees us to do this work, right? The good news of the gospel is that we were wrong. <laughs> in the most, in the, like if I just summarize the gospel in a nutshell, it's, hey, God's saying, I'm sending Jesus into the world because you were wrong. Christians ought to be the first people to go, hey, we were wrong. We're wrong. We were wrong all the time. I'm wrong all the time. That's why Jesus had to come and live the life that I couldn't live, die the death that I should have died. God had a disagreement with me and he solved it in Jesus, right? He sends Jesus to be for me what I can't be for myself. He lives my life, dies my death, rises from the dead, and now gives me his Holy Spirit to say, hey, I wanna lead you to a place of deeper and deeper growth and maturity and confession and repentance. And that's what we celebrate in communion, that God is here, he's with us, he's for us. We don't have to pretend to be something that we're not. We can trust him to do this work 
Whether we like it or not, he's going to do it. The question is, are we going to participate with him? Are we going to go kicking and screaming all the way to the kingdom? And so let's just take a moment. Let's pray. Let's do this work of confession, maybe work of reflection. Maybe think of an area where you're just feeling this tension and you just need to bring this before God. Maybe you need to become a Christian this morning, right? Like to believe in Jesus, to hope in him, to say, Jesus, I want to make you uh, my everything, my Lord, my Savior, right? That's the place to start. We will not have peace and reconciliation and overcome disagreement with one another apart from a peace with God that fills our hearts and souls and gives us the capacity to love like that. And so maybe it's becoming a Christian and just trusting yourself. Maybe it's just saying, hey, I am a Christian, but I've got these issues and I just want God to meet me in the midst of the sadness and pain and unresolved disagreement. I want to get better at this, whatever. So let's just take a moment. Let me pray for us. And then uh, the ushers will come and distribute the elements and then we'll sing. Hang on to your elements for just a moment. We'll take them together and then we'll sing this last song. Father, thank you for your grace to us this morning. Thank you that you see us, that you long for this kind of work to take place, this work of transformation, of people who know how to disagree without dividing, without demonizing, without destroying each other. God, this is, this is what you're doing in the church. This is the beautiful possibility, and yet the tragedy and the pain and the wounds that we carry in this place because we can't seem to grab onto those promises. So God, would you just do a supernatural work in us? Would you open up our eyes? First and foremost, before we say, woe is you and woe is the world, just look inside of ourselves and say, woe is me. God, I know this starts with me and my heart and my soul. God, would you do that work inside of us? And then, God, would you just bring a fruitfulness in and through us in our lives and our relationships this week and this month and this year? And, God, would you give us a renewed passion and zeal to continue to believe that these things are possible by the power of the Holy Spirit? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.